Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business, and thought leaders. Thanks, Rich. Today, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Amy Seawright, a Senior Advisor and Director of the Southeast Asian Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. Amy has very significant Asia policy experience across a variety of areas in both government and academia, and we're looking forward to discuss that with her today. And from 2014 to 2016, Amy served in the Department of Defense, where we had a chance to work together, and she was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for South and Southeast Asia, where she was responsible for leading and coordinating U.S. security and defense policy in the region, a big job. And Amy has also served on the policy planning staff and served as special advisor for APEC in the State Department. Great. Thanks, Rich. So, Amy, I'm going to start you off with some big questions. So, you just got back from some travel to the region. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on in Asia? Like, what, <laughs> how, how do they, what's going on there and how do they feel about what's going on here in the United States? Yeah. So, thanks for having me, by the way, Kurt and Rich. It's a pleasure to be here and see you both. I think there's rising anxiety in the region, I think, caused on two fronts. One is China and Chinese behavior, which over the last several years is been increasingly coercive. There's a recognition that China's rise is here to stay and China wants a lot more influence in the region. And so countries are trying to find a way to accommodate themselves to that. And then there's real anxiety about the United States and the direction that the United States is headed. There's some appreciation for the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. And we can talk about that. But I think the the, the concern is that the United States is withdrawing from its traditional role of leadership and in particular economic leadership in the region. And there are some concerns about Trump uh, that are related to that. Although it's also interesting that when Trump first came into office, Southeast Asians were not particularly concerned about him the way some other allies and friends across the world were, you know, in terms of his character, his personality. I've thought a lot about that too. And mm-hmm. so sometimes I've often had to tell Democratic friends that in some countries, this is not seen as such a right. substantial departure. And I think part of it is that they're used to some of those personalities. Right. And maybe they don't think that's so different in some right. some respects from how we've conducted ourselves, perhaps. Right, right. Um, but what do you think contributes to that? Well, you know, as you say, Kurt, I think we sometimes overestimate how clear and consistent and values-based we are perceived to be in the region. We obviously, the United States has many times, uh, you know, slipped from our stated principles. And and, is, and so we're seen as more transactional in the region as we sometimes think we are. And, and so when Trump came in and he, I mean, look, he's he's a transactional guy. He um, has a lot of business interests. He mixes family and business and politics. And that's not an unfamiliar kind of yeah. uh, person to be leading a country in Southeast Asia. So there was a sense that, you know, if he's pragmatic and if he has, if he's going to be tough on China, then this is someone we can work with. There, there was concern about walking away from TPP on day one of the administration. So on the trade front, there was concern, but there wasn't the kind of values-based concern that we've seen our allies in in Europe and, and Northeast Asia and Australia initially. But I think in recent months, there is growing concern about Trump. So first there was the, the concern about trade and TPP and the withdrawal of other multilateral agreements like the, the Paris Climate Change Accord. But now there's more of a concern. It just seems that the China trade and tech war has, has unfolded and has been rather 
problematic in that it's not very clear what the end goal is, what what is the real strategy. And then, of course, the real problem, I think, is that there's growing sense that they are going to be forced to choose between the United States and China. And when the Trump administration shows up in the region and constantly talks about China and China's bad behavior and how the United States is a better alternative, it really increases their anxiety that they are not, it's going to be more and more difficult for them to hedge as they have traditionally done. Mm. Amy, you talked about when the United States shows up in the region and Mm -hmm. the president has not shown up in the the region uh, for some time. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and the East Asia summit mm-hmm. and his failure to participate and mm-hmm. what that what that means. Yeah, I think it's a real blow to, you know, the strategy. They're trying to put the Indo-Pacific at the forefront of their foreign policy strategy. But when you have a president that doesn't show up, it really undercuts that message. Now, Trump did go to the region for APEC in Vietnam in, in 2017, his first year in office. And he flew to the Philippines and met with ASEAN leaders, but then took off right at the beginning of the East Asia Summit meetings. Right. And that then was it, two years ago. That was two years ago. Right. And then last year he sent President, uh, can, Vice President can I Pence. Ask a bit mm-hmm. on, on that, Amy? Mm-hmm. I, I'm just curious. There's a lot of like kind of reading the tea leaves about what, what that was about. Some said, look, he just doesn't like to sit in meetings like that. He doesn't like to sit around. Mm-hmm. Others suggested that, no, that, look, that initiative was a an Obama administration initiative. Which that, initiative? That setting, you know, kind of joining, working with the East Asia Summit. And yeah. That basically the president is trying to send a signal that on almost, on almost every arena in which previous administrations worked, we're going to depart from that. Is that on? I, I haven't or, or, or heard that. Think? I think, well, you know, in terms of 2017, when he took off right before the launch of the meeting, if you remember, there was all kinds of conflicting messages coming out of the White House about whether he was going to attend the meeting at all. First, he wasn't, and then he was. This is the East Asia Summit. He was always planning to attend APEC. First, he wasn't, and then he was. But there was there was a sense that um, he did not want to be out in the region that long. And that was a pretty long trip, that trip. And um, he gets tired, I'm told, you know, at the end, you know, tired and mm. cranky. And um, I think his, uh, John Kelly was his chief of staff at the time. And my understanding is, you know, he just was protective of the president's time. And so when the, when the East Asia Summit, to be fair, the East Asia Summit started later than scheduled um, because of some other logistical reasons. And so they took off right on time as they had planned. Yeah rather than sticking around. Well, let's, let's set him aside a yeah. second, because I think he's growing increasingly irrelevant in international yeah. affairs, particularly in, um, in Southeast Asia. Hmm. But thinking about the next president and the next mm-hmm. president after that, wh- what would you say to an incoming administration? What, what is the architecture we're trying to fit into? Mm-hmm. Uh, you and Kurt are experts on this. Mm-hmm. For those of us on the outside of it, it's really complicated to try mm-hmm. to figure out when we think about the East Asia Summit, we mm-hmm. think about APEC, we think mm-hmm. about ASEAN, we think about TPP, mm-hmm. RCEP. Uh, like we're we're yeah. trying to figure out where yeah. the U.S. fits into this. Yeah. Well, you know, Asian architecture is a little different from <laughs> regional architecture or global architecture um, in other areas where there's a real emphasis on rules and decision-making uh, when you think of the WTO and the legal enforcement that that brings and all that sort of thing. You know, in Asia, it really is about showing up and it's about discussion, dialogue, trust building, and kind of putting, framing issues on the agenda. And ASEAN has been the leader of that. And they're very jealous of their role as the convener of the region. So it is sort of frustrating to, you know, for, for, from an American perspective where we want results and, you know, we kind of want clear rules and to 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 buy into this ASEAN way of doing things where you do show up and there's not a lot that gets done and not very 
typically not very meaningful things said in the joint statements or, you know, in the meetings themselves. But it does send really important uh, signals to the region about your level of engagement and commitment. And the, the, the concern in the region has long been that the United States it may not be a durable power in the region, that there's not the commitment there. You know, this goes all the way back to our withdrawal from Subic Bay in the Philippines in the, you know, at the very uh, beginning of the post-Cold War period. There's always been these these concerns that the United States is is pretty distant as a as a as a Pacific player. And other countries in the region, like China and Japan and even India, you know, are much closer by right. I just put a political lens on it, though, as, as we think about part of the reason for American either retrenchment or withdrawal. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the Trump people would say, this is, we're just listening to what the American people are actually asking us to do. We are, we are trying to conserve resources, yeah. focus on what's important. And we just don't have uh, critical interests in this very distant part of the world. That's what we're so. Maybe just ask both of yeah. you: What are American interests in in Southeast Asia? Well, I think Southeast Asia is is still um, underrated in terms of its strategic and commercial significance to the United States. So it's a fast growing set of economies. You know, when we think when we look out in the future and think about global growth, China has plateaued in many. Analysts think China is not going to resume its sort of double-digit growth in the future, certainly not in the near term. It might sort of continue to, you know, stagnate a bit. India is clearly going to be a pole of global growth, even though it has its own challenges. But, you know, you look out there, you see India, you see China that's sort of flattened. And then I think the other is, in addition to India, it's, it's Southeast Asia because you've got high growth rates, you know, averaging 6 7% across Southeast Asia, big growing markets with a growing middle class, uh, digitally connected. Yeah, young. Young, right, demographic, you know, demographic tailwinds um, that are going to help their development. There are problems, to be sure. There are a lot of bureaucratic hurdles to doing business there. These are different economies. They haven't managed to fully integrate, despite the promises of the ASEAN economic community and other things. So there's certainly problems, but it's it's clearly going to be a driver of global growth. And a lot of American firms get that, and they are there. Um, but I think it's I think policymakers are a little behind the step in mm. understanding how commercially significant it's going going to be, economically significant. And then strategically, it is the it is the playing field, you know, where all of these dynamics, US, China, strategic competition, and other dynamics, the rise of India, you know, Japan, Australia, the way these other powers um, interact and cooperate or or compete, that it they're all playing on the ASEAN playground. In other words, where this region goes is going to determine, you know, the rules-based order, whether there's a rules-based order in the region or something that looks very different. So, Amy, for those who don't follow this on a just a regular basis, so you've you've mentioned this organization several times, oh, yeah. ASEAN. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be curious. You know, this is a grouping of Southeast Asian nations. Mm-hmm. They meet regularly. They mm-hmm. their culture and their approach mm-hmm. in many ways has shaped the growth of multinationalism, multilateralism, mm-hmm. and the like. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm curious. What's your sense? Is there how has ASEAN fared with rising tensions mm-hmm. in Asia? I, I was with a Southeast Asian, a, a Singaporean diplomat not long ago, who's a little bit skeptical. He's a little dark, and he basically said that China had split mm-hmm. ASEAN like a cord of wood. Yeah. 
and that it was hard that unity was going to be hard fought hard to come by and that on and that on important issues there were clear cleavages yep. is 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 that right and if that's so what's causing it and what what mm-hmm. what are the future indicators looking like so i agree with that at, at the same time we have to remember that ASEAN has never been a particularly powerful or unified organization. They've had, you know, it's had its moments in in years in the past where it was able to sort of give a collective voice to some important issues. Um, but China has very successfully split ASEAN. I agree with that analysis. They are able to pull off, you know, countries like where they have a lot of influence, countries like Cambodia and Laos and others uh, to, to pull them away from forging a consensus. So the voice of ASEAN has certainly diminished somewhat. And yet ASEAN remains the, you know, the central player in Southeast Asia in terms of convening the region, uh, setting out these norms, asking other countries to come to these meetings and interact and and convene in dialogue based on these norms and expectations. So ASEAN always punches below its weight. Um, I think we should expect that well into the future, but I wouldn't dismiss it either. In other words, the United States certainly, the United States and other like-minded countries, Japan, Australia, India, whatever, certainly are better off in a world that has ASEAN, yeah. even a weakened ASEAN, rather than no ASEAN. I, so I wonder sometimes, Amy, I, I do agree that China has played a role on critical issues that divides sort of continental from maritime ASEAN. But mm-hmm. I actually think one of the real challenges of the organization is not so much the external dynamic. Mm-hmm. But I've been struck that that without a strong leading yeah. role of Indonesia, yeah. of Indonesia, Indonesia yeah. really is the mm-hmm. key player, I think, in yeah. many respects. Singapore is important in, in, a, in a subtle way, mm-hmm. but it's small. Mm-hmm. Vietnam has lots of complexity, mm-hmm. so it can't and does not seek to play that leading role. But I think what has really happened over the course of the last decade Decade is Indonesia for a variety of reasons has been reluctant to mm-hmm. play the leadership role. Yeah. And without that, the organization has so I see I, I yeah. think it was more unified before. It was but its strength was exhibited in more subtle ways. Well I think now it's more challenging. Yeah, no, I mean I think it is a mixture. I, I agree that that's a big contributing factor. So Indonesia has been the traditional role of ASEAN and, and the traditional leader of Southeast Asia under Jokowi who's been in power now for five years, he's not very interested in foreign policy. He's not very interested in regional policy. He has not really empowered his foreign minister, Retno, to do to, to be very ambitious in ASEAN. And so that has been a real vacuum. Although it's worth pointing out, you know, this divide and conquer strategy worked even under Jokowi's predecessor, uh, uh, SBY and Marty Nadalagawa, when he was foreign minister, that was the famous Cambodia summit where there was no joint declaration. But in any case, so, so those dynamics have already been, you know, already been in play. Indonesia stepping back a little bit has hurt ASEAN. I, but I do think that in other times, other countries have been able to step up and provide a bit of leadership and guidance. So, for example, you know, if Malaysia were really to step up, I mean, under Prime Minister Najib, for all of his problems, there were times where he really yeah. stepped up at Sunnylands, for example, and really kind of pushed ASEAN into consensus on the South China Sea. Um, you know, there was a time when the Philippines and Vietnam were working very closely together on the maritime issues and trying to rally uh, their, compatri- their their regional friends in ASEAN. What we've seen is not just Indonesia stepping back. It's actually a whole series of leaders that, for a variety of reasons, are more internally focused. The rise of populism, you know, the kind of populist leaders we have, like Duterte and, you know, Mahathir coming back in Malaysia. And all of these other things have led to a real inward focus of, of countries that, tip, you know, traditionally have been much more 
you know, willing to play a leadership role regionally. Can I uh, dig in on the China strategy a little mm-hmm. bit? Because I'm, I'm curious as to uh, whether it's all economic, is it diplomatic mm. and economic, mm. and is it yeah. also military? Yeah. You know, are, are countries scared or are they just purely opportunistic seeing these incredible investment opportunities mm-hmm. taking yeah. on whatever the debt might be and the kind of... Uh, mm-hmm lack of kind of democratic, rules-based, mm-hmm. you know, uh, commercial yeah. engagement that goes with China. And then secondly, if it's, you know, what is what are we doing if, to greatly oversimplify this and make this about the U.S. and China mm-hmm. competing in yep. Southeast Asia, what do, what do we have to compete against that? So I think China is doing all of the above. I mean, certainly they have an economic strategy through the Belt and Road Initiative and a whole bunch of other things, the trade agreements that they're negotiating through RCEP and a whole a whole host of things. So they have they're they're bringing you know trade and investment and financing to the table, and they also have a clear diplomatic strategy. You know, Xi Jinping shows up not to the East Asia Summit actually. That's always been the the premier, but he but he shows up in all these countries and mm-hmm. invites all these leaders to, to to Beijing on a regular basis. And so there's a diplomatic strategy. There's there is a military strategy. They're they're seeking to to create more security ties and, and cooperation. But but what I'd say about China, which is that they're very it's a very coherent strategy. It's mm-hmm. it's uh it's it is whole of government and uh, and coherent and long term, whereas uh, and clear in its messaging. And that has some downsides, both because of the debt traps and other things related to BRI, but also because you know China has increasingly been willing to show its more bullying side, its more coercive side, uh, when it sort of is trying to intimidate countries to respect China's prerogatives. But there's still a real appeal for the commercial things that China brings to bear and the fact that China is so engaged with these leaders and the fact that for some of these leaders, as you say, that have that are challenged on the human rights or democracy front, China offers a kind of, you know, benign environment right. in which they can thrive. And as in comparison, you know, what is the United States? How can they compete with China? Well, we do have security partnerships that are unmatched. We have two allies in the region, Thailand and Philippines, a very strong strategic partner in Singapore, and very strong and growing uh, defense ties with countries like Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia. You know, we 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 are still the security partner of choice. There's right. no question about that. And the regular sailing of of freedom and navigation operations in the South China Sea. So and the other mil- military is, piece has been fairly consistent throughout successive administrations. Yeah, Would I, you agree with that? Well, I, I think that, that over the last two administrations, there's been a focused effort on trying to build the security partnerships even more. So there was a negotiation right. of rotational access agreements right. in the region and 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 building up partnerships with Vietnam as well as India. And this and this administration is continuing to that, to do that pretty well. So there's been there has been more of a focus security wise. So in some sense that. That that is a comfortable position for Southeast Asian countries to be in because they have the economic cake of China and they get to eat the security partnerships mm. of the United States too. They can hedge very effectively, which is why they feel so uh, rattled. I think recently when the way the the way that the tech war between the United States and China started to unfold, and a lot of the rhetoric coming out of Washington is causing countries to think maybe this is not going to be so easy. Maybe we're not going to be able to just have clear economic partnerships with China in a, in a variety of ways and maintain very good relationships with Washington. They might sort of force us to choose, and that's not a comfortable position for them to be. Uh, I 
want to shift your attention and maybe mm-hmm. direct this question to actually both uh, you, Amy, and Kurt. Mm-hmm. I want to sh- shift your attention to Pacific Islands because uh, I know it's a subject you both care about. Kurt cares about it because the uh, Amelia Earhart wreckage may be somewhere in the yeah. Pacific Islands. I but, know who uh, you're working on that. <laughs> but uh, no, in, in all seriousness, you guys have both been committed to it. Uh, Amy, you've got this terrific report that you wrote earlier in the year. I assume you can find it on the CSIS website on strengthening the U.S.-Pacific Islands partnership. Mm -hmm. But I guess, again, same question. Why should we care about the Pacific Islands? Uh, You know, give us a sense of what's happening there and and maybe even talk a little bit about the threats that they face. Kurt, you want to go first? Yeah. Well, uh, thanks, Amy. So it's a, a region that I've traveled through a lot, like Amy. What's striking rich is that, you know, these are places that, you know, you think of Pacific Islands and you think, oh my God, you know, the uh, beautiful beaches and, you know, kind of resorts and stuff. But the reality on the ground is very much different. These are populations that face some of the worst health crises of, you know, of, of any populations on the planet. They're more similar to problems with, you know, the most challenging places of mm-hmm. Africa, huge diabetes, um, health issues, bad diets, chronic unemployment, no industries. You, you just could go on and on. And more recently besieged by climate change, right, in which some of the countries that Amy and I visited literally, literally are facing imminent existential challenges like they will not exist in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And they have to basically resettle their populations in, you know, probably New Zealand or Australia or somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's um, when you go there, you're struck because we have a very strong moral and historical set of uh, obligations and experiences. My father had fought through there during the Second World War. And you can see the, you know, the memorials both to America and Japanese, other forces on all these distant islands. What was most striking to me, though, Rich, is I remember I landed on one of these distant islands and they welcomed us at the airport and they said, oh, this is terrific. We had another one uh, person visit in 1987. <laughs> right. So there, I think that's changing now, but there was a real sense that that we had not been as actively engaged yeah. in the region as yeah, before. What, what do you think? Amy? Yeah, well, this is, it's a fascinating region, and it is both geographically blessed and cursed. I mean, it's blessed because these are small island nations in a vast swath of Pacific blue water, and they have abundant resources in terms of fisheries. Um, they have huge uh, EEZs, uh, exclusive economic zones. That makes them strategically really important because they take up, you know, a lot of very strategically significant space, which was shown in World War II. You know, when Japan and the United States fought fought so hard in that region. So they have uh, they have strategic assets and commercial assets, but because they are such small, tiny dots, their small population, as Kurt said so far away from, you know, international shipping lanes and commercial markets, it makes it incredibly difficult for them to develop economically, to develop manufacturing industries and that kind of thing. Anything. And anything, right. So, um, you know, hopefully the internet and other things might be able to change that, but, but but they are beset by a lot of developmental challenges and governance challenges. But China has shown a real surging interest in the region. It's actually not quite as new as sometimes people in Washington think. I mean, China's been there for for quite a few years, 
but it has been investing more and more heavily in in, uh, in relationships and in supporting countries and the regional architecture and other things. And so it's gotten a lot of notice in Washington. And so as Kurt said, you know, the United States, I think, had really taken the Pacific Islands for granted, sort of our, you know, in the back in the backyard, and uh, it would be tended to once in a while, but not a lot of focus and energy in that space. Australia and New Zealand are big players uh, in the region as well. And they, they've been, they also, to some extent, were, have, were growing kind of complacent. And suddenly this new Chinese influence, the surge of Chinese interest and influence has kind of woken everyone up and everyone now is stepping up in various ways in their Pacific strategies. So when I hear Pacific people talk, they say that, first of all, we welcome you back. I mean, we never, we don't feel like you've ever left. We've always mm. felt so close to the United States, you know, because of historical ties. But uh, we welcome you back. We hope you'll stay, stick around. We don't want to just be seen as a pawn in a U.S.-China rivalry. So when Secretary Pompeo showed up to the to the Marshall Islands and met with the, the three Micronesia lead, leaders there, you know, it was great that he showed up. But, you know, in his first paragraph, he said, we're here to support your democracy at a time when China is rewriting the rules of the Indo-Pacific. Like mm. you couldn't get through one sentence without right. saying China instead of just saying we're here because we're your friends, you know? So the messaging I think needs a little bit of work, but um, but there is a real, there's a real appetite for American engagement. But the other p- point to make is the one that Kurt made, which is they're, they're facing existential crisis and climate change and islands that are gonna be increasingly underwater. And the fact that the United States has walked away from its global leadership on climate change creates some real difficulty in really fixing up the engagement. Can I, one of the other things, Rich, that it's a really good question, but in many of these countries, the United States has played both as a role as a security guarantor, and, and you have to kind of go through, there's the compact nations, now there's very complicated, and there right. are really dozens and dozens of islands involved. But ultimately, much of this comes down to, despite all the things that we're working on, writing checks. I mean, this is about foreign assistance and direct support in exchange for our ability to engage, you know, in a, in a as a security guarantor. And for some of these islands, particularly the islands in which we tested nuclear weapons, for instance, the, that price tag over a period of decades has been enormous. Mm-hmm. And we're coming up on renegotiating this compact with the states in which we did the nuclear tests in the 19, late 1940s and 1950s. And it's going to be a real uh, bellwether for the Trump administration because, you know, they, they've they been very clear that they don't want to spend much more money on foreign assistance. Mm-hmm. But these price tags are mm-hmm. enormous. Amy, what do, you, what do you have to say about that generally? Yeah, you know, the compact states, it's it's an interesting thing because when the when the compacts were created, the idea was that we wanted countries to graduate from them. You know, we right. wanted to we wanted to help them stand up on their own feet, but that's been for all the reasons we've already talked about, incredibly difficult and challenging. And so now at a time of growing strategic importance of the Pacific Islands uh, in the eyes of Washington, there's renewed interest in renewing the compact. When I was in government, there was a lot of talk about we need to kind of work on graduating from the compacts. And now right. that's completely reversed. And there's just talk about renegotiating it. But Congress is going to be the challenge. I think the Trump yeah. administration is actually quite committed to it. D- does it does it matter that this isn't really traditional for his, uh, foreign assistance? It yeah. actually comes from the interior department. Interior department, department. You know, yeah. So, so it's really yeah, yeah, I think it does. I think... Um, I think it. I, I don't think it's an administration problem. I think it's going to be a congressional problem whether they're willing to allocate the amounts of money that are going to be involved. I want to ask you uh, 
Another question about your career, and you know, we we've had the great honor and pleasure to work with you and seen you as a policy professional, uh, Defense Department mm -hmm. uh, representative abroad, mm -hmm. um, State Department, AID mm -hmm. uh, scholar, <laughs> uh, but you're also uh, a woman in a field mm -hmm. dominated by men, mm -hmm. national security as you sit across from Kurt, and Kurt and I. <laughs> but I, you know, I wonder if you could just give folks a sense of what that was like breaking through a lot of uh, barriers and working in environments and sitting around tables where you might have been the only woman at the table or mm -hmm. one of a, one of a couple. Well, I was very lucky to go into the Pentagon at a time when, um, although I did not work directly under her, Michelle Flournoy had been undersecretary of defense, and uh, there was a lot of other leadership in the Pentagon in the Obama administration that was very supportive of women and other diverse people being given high-level positions. So I was, I walked in at a time when there were actually, I had a lot of female colleagues uh, and female bosses. Uh, Kath Hicks was, was one of my bosses and others. So it wasn't, I think if it had been 10 years before, it would have felt very different. However, being on the Asia beat, I mean, my first job in the Pentagon was working on East Asia, and I was doing a lot of work with Japan and Korea, and yeah. I was always the only woman at the table. Yeah. Always. And it was quite striking, just uh, just one other anecdote. When I was uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense for, for South and Southeast Asia, I was part of the Osman meetings, which is the Australia-U.S. ministerial. So it, we have the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense. At the time, it was John Kerry and Ash Carter. And sitting across the table from us was Julie Bishop yeah. and Maurice Payne, uh, two yeah. female ministers of defense and, and foreign affairs from Australia. And I was the only woman at the other side of the table. And Maurice right. Payne came around uh, at a break, came around and, and uh, introduced herself to me and said, I'm just so glad to see a woman on yeah. the other side of the table. How, how, do we change, how do we change that and how important is it that we change it? Well, I, I think it's really important, especially for younger women who see who can have role models um, see women in positions of leadership I mean there's so there you know a lot of barriers have been broken and um, you know to be honest I, I feel like I was such the beneficiary of, of women who came before me but it is it is a constant I think the bigger issue right now is it's it's a constant issue these kind of gender-based um, characteristics that get, you know, right. you, you get, you get evaluated in a certain way when yeah. you're a woman and, you know, it's, it's, uh, you always have to be, you always have to be playing this game of, you know, how, how caring and supportive and, and that sort of thing do you want to be versus being very decisive and, uh, you know, what's often described as sort of pushy or aggressive or, you know, for women. I think that's, that, that's a struggle that I think even younger women whose, whose path towards certain kinds of jobs have been, you know, paved, there've been role models, but it's a sort of daily thing you have to kind of Yeah. Deal well, with. You, you've been a great role model for lots of people, well, including you. us. Thank you. Amy, that's a great answer. I'd, I'd like to just uh, give you one last hard question. So mm. you, you've been, you've devoted most of your career to thinking about the big issues in Asia. You've been in government in a variety of institutional capacities. You've spent your time at think tanks and elsewhere uh, reflecting on sort of the trajectory of American power mm -hmm. uh, in Asia more generally. As you sit today and observe what's happening both in the United States and Asia, mm -hmm. right? How do you ultimately feel? Are you optimistic about America's role in Asia? Do you think our 
the trajectory is for more engagement and deeper involvement? Or do you worry that that we're actually in a position in which um, the U.S. role is declining over time? And 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 as you both as we both know, that's been a big feature for decades. Mm-hmm. You talked about sure. the Philippines, a lot of worry mm-hmm. about American decline and departure. But you know, we've we've been able to go against the naysayers for decades. But at some point, that might actually happen, right? Mm-hmm. We might actually be in a different set of circumstances. Where do you come down on this? Well, that's a big question. So I, I am that, relatively. I'm, we're going to let you. We're going to let you give the last word to close on this. <laughs> I am relatively optimistic that the United States will get back to a better uh, kind of leadership policy towards Asia, by which I mean, you know, I think the public opinion polls and and other things um, lead me to think that at some point, probably not next year or the year after, but at some point, we will get back to multilateral trade negotiations in the region and leading on the economic rulemaking front and continuing to put Southeast Asia and the Indo-Pacific at the top of of our foreign policy priority list. So I'm reasonably optimistic about that. But at the same time, you know, the reality is the United States, in a relative sense, is declining um, relative to China and a lot of other, you know, rising nations in the region. And the United States is going to have to get a lot better at strategy because we can't just rely on our overwhelming power and economic influence like we were in the past. And the final thing to say is I am worried about the legacy of of Trump, whether he, you know, whether he leaves in a year or four years. I think he has set back the image of the United States in terms of the principles the United States stands for and, and economic leadership and, and engagement. And that's not something that can be corrected overnight, even with the best Asia team of a subsequent administration. It'll yeah. take it'll take years. Really well said. Uh, Amy, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. We really uh, appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. <laughs>